my name's Taylor. For those of you that uh, maybe I haven't gotten a chance to meet, if that's any of you, uh, please say hi afterwards because I would really love to. Um, but we are in this series uh, called, uh, a series on the book of 1 Peter. This is the second to last teaching that we'll do. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. I think we'll have it up here on the screen, but if you have your own Bible or phone you want to pull it up on, uh, you can read along with me as well. Um, I'll say before we read our text that the specific context that um, the the Apostle Peter is addressing here is he's uh, is a theme that's kind of woven throughout the book where he's uh, pastorally shepherding a group of followers of Jesus who are being mistreated for the fact of following Jesus. And so the, that's one of the main concerns of, of Peter's letter here. And so it gets woven throughout and he deals with this issue of suffering and suffering in the way of Jesus and the resources that the way of Jesus gives us for navigating our suffering. But I want us to know as we read through, as, as, especially as we think about the tone he's using, that the specific type of suffering he's addressing is being mis is mistreatment for the sake of following Jesus. And I think it's, it's very plausible that his tone pastorally might be different if the type of suffering he were addressing were addressing childhood trauma or just having received terrible news from the doctor of a loved one or yourself. I mean, what, is, what I want us to see here is that he, he's addressing a particular kind of suffering, and his tone matches that particular kind of suffering, even as the underlying truth that he's bringing to his audience is relevant to us, even if our suffering is really different. And so when he's, he's going to talk about rejoicing in suffering, and he might be a little bit um, slower to bring us to that sort of truth, were he bringing us to, were, were he addressing a different kind of suffering, if that makes sense. So that's the caveat that I want to say, just because um, it can be, it can be uh, if we miss that context, we might miss pastorally Peter's heart. And we might miss uh, the potential that he might be slower and more, uh, and more gentle, <laughs> softer in the way that he's delivering truths were the context different. Because that, our context might be very different than the type of uh, suffering that Peter is addressing. All that said, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. I'll read it, and then we'll have just a moment of quiet to invite each of, each of us in our own way, in our own language, invite the Spirit of God to speak to us and meet us this morning. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, uh, you can read along with me as I read aloud here. Here are the words of the author of 1 Peter. Here they are in starting in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. And let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. That's God's word for us this morning written by a human author in their own language and style and context, but in spirit, inspired by the Spirit of God. And every time we open up God's Word, He has something to say to us. Let's pray right now, and each in our own way, ask Him to speak. Um, let's pray. Lord, we love you. And uh, we, we ask that you would speak to us right now. 
Thank you that you care about every single one of us. You love every single one of us. You know every single one of us even better than we know ourselves. And we just invite you right now, our Father who made us, who delights in us, who has gone to the ends of the earth in Jesus to rescue us. We invite you to speak. So right now, each in uh, the quiet of our own hearts, whatever words make sense, maybe it's just say, God, would you speak to me right now? But um, let's just, each of us invite the Spirit of God to speak to us as we look at his word. God, we pray, come Holy Spirit. Speak to us, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. While I was lying face up on my bathroom floor, staring at the ceiling, hot tears streaming down my face, furious with God. Uh, not, not too long before, a couple days before, um, my father-in-law, Becca's dad, uh, passed away. Uh, he was 58, and he had had a several years battle with prostate cancer. And for most of that time, the outlook was really good. And in the last several months, things took a turn for the worse and very quickly de-escalated, uh, as you might say, and he passed away. And I was grieving, I felt loss, and I was angry. And I felt angry uh, because of what I knew I was missing, because of what I knew we had lost. I loved my father-in-law deeply. He was an incredibly important person to me. I was grieving the fact that Becca would not have her dad in her life anymore and what I knew that she felt. I was grieving the loss of our, chi our children, being able to know, their know my father-in-law, know their grandfather throughout the course of their life. I was grieving the fact that God didn't answer our prayers the way that we hoped he would answer our prayers. And I had never seen a community of people more committed to praying for a person's healing together as a community in my entire life. There was a network of people praying 24-7. We were having regular prayer gatherings with a large group of people praying over him. Many people who knew him but were just maybe barely on the fence following Jesus or not even really yet following Jesus who were praying for the first time that my father-in-law would be healed. And I thought, God, if there was ever a time that you would answer our prayers the way that we hope you'd answer our prayers, if there was ever a time that you would heal somebody, why would it not be this time? And I've seen literal miraculous answers to prayer. Of course, I've seen God work through uh, just the great blessing of modern medicine and people and, and treatments going according to plan. I've seen miracles happen. There, I, I, not long before my father-in-law passed, uh, there was an instance in the church I was a part of at the time where a person had a full-blown stage four cancer, tumor clear as day on the scan, all the blood work confirming what was clear on the scan, and the next day going in, and it's completely gone. I'd seen miraculous answers to prayer. God, why not this time? And I'm processing with God, and I'm full of anger. Several days go by. We're pro I'm processing and grateful to have an incredible network of family and friends that were with us and supported us. And I remember a few days later, um, just being with the Lord and talking with the Lord, and remember saying something like this, God, I'm still so angry, but I'd rather have you and have questions than not have you and have this mean nothing. And what I think I was getting out of my heart as I was processing and just dealing with the grief and sorting it out before God, what I, was, what I was getting at is abandoning trust in God doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't make this easier. It doesn't make this make more sense. Intellectually, it, it opens up a whole new can of worms and a whole new set of questions. 
God, I'm so glad I have you. As angry as I am, as deep as my questions are, as real as my pain is, I'd so much rather have you than not have you. Because while the issue of suffering poses some very real questions to the reality of an all-good, all-powerful God, having him, having him as he's revealed himself to be in Jesus, offers precious resources for navigating those very questions. I I brought this up uh, the last time I spoke a couple weeks ago uh, in relation to a similar issue that the Apostle Peter brings up earlier in the letter. But uh, there was a surgeon named Paul Brand who spent most of his career practicing medicine in a very disenfranchised community of India. And later in his career, he transitioned back to doing uh, medicine and ministry in the United States. And he reflected upon the cultural differences and what he noticed about our culture and our values and the things that shape the way that we navigate the world in relationship to suffering. And he wrote a memoir in which he reflected upon this. And here was one of his observations. And he says this with no judgment and no shame, just as an observation for where our cultural values leave us in relationship to suffering. He says this, patients in the U.S. lived at a greater comfort level than any I had previously treated, but they seemed far less equipped to handle suffering and far more traumatized by it. And what he's getting at is this, the baseline values of our cultural moment, extreme individualism, consumerism, lifestyle-driven values of life, all kinds of isms that we could throw out. They leave us with relatively shallow resources for navigating the real pain of life. And so the question we ask ourselves when we come to a passage like this, is we live in a cultural moment that, not to belabor the point, but gives us relatively shallow resources for navigating suffering, our question is, what resources does the way of Jesus offer us for navigating our pain and our heartache and our loss? And here's what we'll observe as we unpack this text. A big idea is this, that in a cultural moment that offers relatively shallow resources for navigating suffering, the way of Jesus gives us the resources to hopefully endure the real pain of suffering. As we frame it in light of the true story of redemption, we see in it the purifying processes of God, and we experience in it the mysterious suffering love of Jesus. So that's how we'll spend the rest of our time as we unpack this passage, that the way of Jesus and the Apostle Peter in this passage is inviting us to frame our hardship in light of the true story of redemption, to see in it the purifying purposes of God, and to experience in it the mysterious suffering love of Jesus. So we'll start by looking at how the Apostle Peter invites us to frame our heartache in light of the true story of redemption. Because he says this in, 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 uh, in verses 12 and 13, he starts by saying, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And then later he says, you're sharing in Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's something to come in the future. And so he's framing for us how we should, what we should expect out of life now and then projecting forward about what's to come in the future. So we have to ask ourselves, what is Peter tapping into here? See, Peter tells his readers not to be surprised, but here's what he's not doing. He's not saying, hey, life's hard, suck it up. He's not saying, don't you expect bad things to happen? Get over it, life's hard. That's not what he's saying. When he says don't be surprised, he's not saying that we should all just get over it, that we should all just not think it's that big of a deal. He's not saying that we're all a bunch of lightweights for for navigating hard things in life. Instead, here's what Peter's doing. 
Peter is drawing us to see our lives in the context of a true story that unfolds throughout the story of Scripture. He's telling us how to frame what we're going through now, and he's projecting forward how the story ends when Christ returns, and and to use his language, his glory is revealed. He's drawing us to see our lives and to frame our hardship and our loss and our heartache in the true story of creation and fall and redemption and a future new creation. Here's the story that he's wanting us to, to frame our hardship in light of. He wants us to frame it in light of the design of God, the intent of God, the heart of God for his creation. That we live in a world that God created to be good. And that when God put the first people in the garden, that that life that he meant for them was a life free of suffering, free of sin, free of death, in perfect communion with God forever. His creation is good. That the way things are supposed to be is that life would be free of suffering, that life would be free of death, that life would be free of evil and injustice, which is why we feel like it's wrong, because it is. And yet, each in our own way, the story of Scripture goes on to reveal that the first people and each of us in our own way have chosen to mistrust God rather than trust God. And in so doing, we've invited in darkness and evil and suffering and injustice. And because humankind is to represent God in his creation, when we are now at disharmony with God, all of creation is at, is at disharmony with God. Human life at large is at disharmony with God. It's like when... Um, when, when I was a preteen, but this was before Spotify and this was before uh, Apple Music and you used to buy CDs uh, instead of downloading it onto a device, except there was this little overlap period before Spotify, before Apple Music, and kind of while CDs were still a thing but declining because we used to illegally download music onto our computer. So there was Napster and there was LimeWire and there was uh, other ones that I'm blanking on right now, but we, you, you, know, you picked your poison of what, what software you used to illegally download music onto your computer. And unbeknownst to my parents, I was illegally downloading music on my computer, except here's a thing that happens when you illegally download music onto your computer. You frequently, or at least you run the risk of downloading a virus onto your computer because there's some bad actor out there just trying to mess everyone's life up. And so you're seeking something in a way that you shouldn't be seeking it. And in seeking that thing, you're, in, you're, you're inviting in an intruder from the outside that disrupts the whole system. And so the computer now with a virus on it, downloaded from the outside, still operates kind of the way that it's supposed to, and yet also not the way it's supposed to. There's problems now, and that is life on this side of the fall. There's an intruder from the outside, sin and death and the powers of darkness. And creation is still, is still good in the sense that it still carries God's good design. Life is still beautiful and sweet in the sense that it still carries God's good design, but the intruder from the outside means that it no longer works the way it's supposed to work and that the world is no longer functioning the way that it's supposed to function. And we live on that side of the story, and yet the story doesn't end there. The story goes with God graciously intervening on our behalf and inviting and promising from the very beginning that he would make a way where there was no way and that he would do for us what we haven't done for ourselves. And so he invites his people, the children of Israel, to be his partners in this plan of redemption. It all culminates in Jesus where the creator of the universe becomes one of us, that he enters into the human story and he experiences suffering as part of the human story and raises it up with him when he takes on our suffering and our sin and our injustice into himself 
and then lets and then it crushes him on the cross. He's raised to life, and now there is a access to the Father in a way that was not previously available to us. There's reconciliation with God that was not previous previously available to us. There's now there's now a taste of what will come in the end, and then in the end, Jesus will come again. He'll make all things new. Sin and death and suffering will be undone and put to, put to death. And there will be a new creation, creation as it was always meant to be, but even sweeter from having been redeemed. And anyone who wants it, anyone who wants him, will be forever with him in life as it was always meant to be. Peter says, frame your experience, frame your hardship, frame your suffering in light of that story. Don't be surprised at what you experience on this side of the fall. That's the nature of the story. And also, look forward to the sure hope of new creation, of restoration, of reconciliation to come. Look forward to the glory of Christ being revealed in the end. Suffering is not, supposed, is not how it is supposed to be. And yet it's also not how the story ends. And framing our suffering, framing our heartache, framing our loss in light of the true story of creation and fall and redemption and future new creation has profound implications for how we navigate our suffering and disappointment and loss and heartache today. As we place our life experience in light of that true story, that we live where redemption has come but new creation has not yet come in full, that we live on this side of the fall but that's not how the story ends. It gives us resources. It helps us understand what, where we are in the story and what we are to make of it. And I think here's, a, here's one implication. Here's a first implication that I think is really important. First implication of the whole story of, of redemption that we're a part of and framing our life in light of it. The first implication is that we see that the cosmic and eternity-spanning scope of the story it shows us that it's at least possible that God has reasons for allowing terrible things that we can't understand, at least not yet. The scope of the story, the, the fact that it spans from eternity past to eternity present and that God is orchestrating things together that are vastly beyond our capacity to hold in our minds, that hints at the fact that there could be things that we can't understand. There could be reasons that God has for allowing what he allows that we are not yet able to understand, which frees us from giving trite and cliche answers about God's purposes in the midst of our suffering. It frees us from saying things like, well, when God closes a door, he opens up another. Yes, sometimes he does. And sometimes he doesn't, or it doesn't seem like he does. It doesn't, we don't know what the reason is. We can't see the purpose behind it, at least not yet. God God is working things out in the story of redemption, but it is so grand and large in scope that it is okay to come to, to come to these issues and be able to admit that we don't understand what God is doing and yet also trust that he, he could have good purposes for allowing what he allows. It frees us from falling back on cliches and trite, quick, easy answers that aren't actually there. All while trusting God. Uh, in in the, the, the story of uh, Harry Potter, about three-quarters of the way through the book series, specifically in uh, The Order of the Phoenix, Harry Potter goes through his, like, angsty teen phase. 
And in his angsty teen phase, he, he begins to become really distrusting of Dumbledore, who is like kind of the authority figure in the story. And uh, I'm about to use a Harry Potter analogy. And if you've never read Harry Potter, it's going to sound like I'm speaking the most ridiculous mumbo jumbo you've ever heard. I'm going to drop some names that are going to make you feel confused beyond your wildest imagination. But go with us here, especially for the sake of those who do know the story. So in, Harry Potter begins to become distrusting of the authority figure, Albus Dumbledore. Albus Dumbledore. There you go. There's the w weird names already starting. And, uh, and, and in the course of the story, we know that uh, Dumbledore is not bringing in all, uh, bringing Harry into all the information of the plan that he has for fighting the Dark Lord Voldemort. Oh my gosh, it feels funny coming off the lips. Um, and, uh, and Harry's frustrated. Harry's frustrated that he feels like Dumbledore is not telling him everything that he could be telling him. And at one point in the story, one of the characters, a guy named Phineas Nicholas Black, there you go, uh, tells Harry, uh, basically re um, reframes for Harry the idea that Dumbledore may have good reasons for not telling him everything he could tell him. And so here's how the dialogue goes. And, and this character, uh, Black, is uh, responding to Harry's angsty teen phase. So he's got some salt in the way that he's kind of coming down on him. Don't read too much into that. Just let's take the analogy. He says, Black says to Harry Potter, has it not occurred to you, my poor puffed up popinjay, that there might be an excellent reason why the headmaster of Hogwarts is not confiding every tiny detail of his plan to you. You are quite sure that you alone feel and think. You alone recognize danger. You alone are the only one clever enough to realize what the Dark Lord is planning. Now, personally, I've really wrestled with God over the issue of being let into the plan. I've had multiple conversations with God over the course of my life where the gist of it has basically been, Okay, God, I can, handle, I can handle disappointment. I can handle a hard thing. I can handle a loss. But would you just tell me what you're up to? Would you just show me where the story ends? And I know, I know the, where the big story's going, but would you just bring, it, just, just bring me in? Give me a little nugget. Show me something. Make this obviously connect to something else. Just bring me in. And I think one of the things the scope of the big story shows us, the way that it spans from eternity past to eternity present in the mind of God that we can't possibly fully wrap our minds around, is the fact that God might have very good reasons, but that we can't yet understand. And we can hold that mystery with an open hand because we know who God is. So, if we can understand good-hearted authority figures like Dumbledore doing things that trouble a character like Harry Potter, but with good reasons, I think it's also possible that the all-powerful, infinitely good, loving, and wise God of the universe might allow things that deeply trouble us, that cause deep pain, but for which there are actually good reasons that we can't yet see. And that's not to say he causes it, but it is to say he may have very good reasons for allowing it. He may have reasons that we don't understand, and yet we're a part of a story of redemption where the story has a happy ending. A second implication here of framing our experience in light of the true story. And this will take us to the philosophy classroom a little bit, but I think it's worth doing because some of us may have real hanging intellectual questions about the problem of suffering. The second is that the true story of redemption shows us that abandoning belief in God doesn't actually solve any of the very real questions that suffering poses. You know, um, the story shows us, the story of redemption shows us 
that while suffering is inevitable and heartache and loss are a property of life on this side of the fall, that it's not how it was always meant to be. And so our intuition that it's wrong, that it's not supposed to be this way, is actually right even while we, sh while we live in the reality of suffering's inevitability. And a lot of us have objections, or many of us might have an objection. I've wrestled with this myself of how could the existence of an all-good, all-powerful God possibly square with the, possi with the reality that there's so much suffering in the world with my own heartache and suffering and loss? But what that, what that question, which is a very good question that we shouldn't be afraid of, but what that question presupposes is that suffering actually is wrong. But how can we know that suffering actually is wrong? Especially if we abandon belief in God. Abandoning belief in God would lead us to expect what we just see in the world. And so if the world is just what there is, and there is no meaning behind it, there's no transcendent design behind it, there's no story of redemption behind it, there's no God behind it, if this is just what there is, what we observe in the world is that the world is a world of the survival of the fittest. It's a world of the strong eat the weak. It's a world where bad things happen and they don't necessarily mean anything. And it's not right, and it's not wrong, it just is. But our intuition is that it is wrong. And our reason for having questions is that we feel that it's wrong. C.S. Lewis put it like this. C.S. Lewis was describing how, uh, before he was a follower of Jesus, this was one of the reasons that he didn't believe in the God of the Bible. And then he began to deconstruct that question, and his, art, his flow of thought went like this. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I could have given up on my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but my private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world really was unjust, not simply that it didn't happen to please my private fancies. So what he's saying is he began to realize my, my sense that the world is not the way that it's supposed to be is actually evidence that it's supposed to be another way. And it can only supposed to be another way if there's design behind it, if there's a God behind it all. And so while there's real questions that come with reconciling the existence of a good, loving, all-powerful God and the suffering that we experience, disbelieving in God doesn't solve the problem. And in fact, and again, we're in the philosophy classroom, we'll step out of it for a second, but... This has uh, led many philosophical thinkers to, while still wrestling with this problem, no longer consider it to be a proof against the existence of God. So there's an atheist philosopher, a guy named J.L. Mackey, and, and he writes this on his reflection of the, the, what people call the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. He, he says this, and again, he's not a follower of Jesus, but he, he says this, he says, we can concede that the problem of evil does not, after all, show that the central doctrines of the existence of God are logically inconsistent with one another. We cannot indeed take the problem of evil as a conclusive disproof for traditional belief in God. Now, that's the philosophy classroom. And we might read a quote like that and think, great, problem solved, right? Let's just sing a, sing a worship song, take the Lord's Supper together, and be on our way, but not so fast. Because while a philosopher like J.L. Mackey will say that this doesn't disprove the existence of God, he goes on in his writing to say he still feels unsatisfied. It still feels him leaves him feeling empty because suffering, hardship, loss, grief, disappointment, 
There's so much more than just intellectual issues. They're personal issues. And so we're going to leave the philosophy classroom, and we're going to follow Peter's line of thinking for the rest of our, our look at this passage here as he brings us to Jesus. Because as it's been said before, in the midst of our suffering, God doesn't come to us only as a good argument. He comes to us as a compelling person, the person of Jesus. And so Peter invites us to see in our hardship the purifying purposes of God. And this is our next observation. He, he, he refers to the, the experiences that his readers are going through in, in terms of facing persecution and mistreatment for the fact of following Jesus. He calls them in verse 12 a fiery trial on one hand and then a test on the other. And we hear these two, image, these two word pictures, these two images that the Apostle Peter is using to frame and explain what God is up to in, the, in allowing what he's allowed in the midst of our experience. And we hear those two things, and we have, may have a misconception of what the Apostle Peter is talking about. But there are two images that I think we need to get our mind around in order to understand what God is up to. And so we'll start with the first, that, we hear, that the Apostle Peter refers to their experience as a fiery trial. When we hear the term fiery trial, the image of fire, we tend to assume that that image is an image of judgment. It's an image of punishment, that what, what he's talking about must be about God getting us. But in chapter 1, Peter has used the same language, the, the image of fire, not to describe punishment, but to describe purification, he uses in chapter 1 this image of fire purifying gold, that when, that when a piece of gold is put to the fire, it melts and the impurities rise to the top so that they can be scooped off so that at the end, at the end of having endured the fire, the gold is now purer, more of what it is always meant to be than it was before it went through the fire. And so this image of fire is not an image of punishment, it's an image of purification. And here's a mystery of life in a broken world. Pain is often one of the most effective tools for us to receive what our souls most need. I wish it weren't that way, if I'm being candid. None of us would choose it. But in a broken world, pain is often one of the most effective tools for us to receive what our souls most need. And that might not be a truth that we need to hear right when we're in the midst of it right when the bad news comes. Maybe we just need to sit and to grieve and lament. Scripture models that that should be our posture. But eventually, God does invite us to see his purifying purposes in the midst of our hardship. When I was in college, uh, one year, my roommates and I um, took on care of a, someone else's dog for about nine months. It's a very long story, but we... Um, we volunteered with a, a ministry that served unhoused folks and we became close with a younger guy living on the street and he really wanted to get sober but he had this dog that had that he had been with him since the dog was a puppy traveling up and down the California coast and he really wanted to go to a rehab facility but he was really concerned with what was going to happen to his dog he didn't want to just drop the dog off at the pound or something like that he wanted to make sure the dog had a good home so one of my knucklehead roommates had the bright idea that we take this dog in, this completely untrained pit bull who had been living on the street for who knows how long, and that we take care of him for the next several month stretch, which ended up being about twice as long as we had anticipated it would be. Anyway, this dog's name was Baloo, like the bear in the story Jungle Book, and he was a knucklehead. Like I said, completely untrained. This is a true story, 100% true. He ate three quarters of an artificial Christmas tree in one December. Like, like I came home, 
and the artificial Christmas tree is in shambles. Most of it's gone. Where is it? It's in Baloo's stomach. And over the next several days, we found out that, yes, it was in Baloo's stomach and came out on the other side. Metal, plastic, the little tinsely leave things, knucklehead dog. I was driving home from work one day about a mile away from our house, and the dog ran across the street on this super busy street in San Luis Obispo. And it's like, that's Baloo. What is he doing a mile from our house? He'd like crawling out of the fence, was running around town, put him in my car, we get him back home. One day, one of my roommates had a big bag of Hershey's Kisses. Um, and Baloo got into this big bag of Hershey's Kisses and ate more than half of this big bag of Hershey's Kisses. Tinfoil and all, by the way, knucklehead dog. And if you know anything about dogs and chocolate, chocolate is poisonous to dogs. This was a a life-threatening situation for Baloo. So we're panicking, we're like researching what are we supposed to do, how do we get this out of his system as quickly as possible. One of my roommates just, you know, searched it up real quick, found that if you that if you have the dog drink hydrogen peroxide, it will make him release everything that's come out of, uh, out of uh, in his stomach. He'll throw it all up. So we put hydrogen peroxide into the, the, the water bowl, have him come over to the water bowl. He drinks it up. Oh, yay, they're caring about my hydration. They love me so much. And all of a sudden, the look of panic on this dog's face as it realized what was happening to its body, and it was the look of, like, I trusted you. You betrayed me. Like, because... This dog has no way of knowing that he's about to die, has no way of knowing that he's ingested poison. All he knows is that the people that are taking care of him have led him to drink something that is destroying his body, or at least that's what it feels like. And yet, that process was the process of him having his life saved, that he was getting out from him that which was destroying him, but he had no way of knowing that's what was happening. On this side of the fall, in a broken world, none of us would choose it, but pain is often one of, one of the most effective tools for us receiving what our souls most need, and we might not even be aware that's what's happening. We might not even know that there's being something taken out of us in the process of our pain, but God has purifying purposes for us in it. Not that he causes it, but his purpose in allowing it is purifying But what is he purifying? What is he producing in us? And that's where we get to this image of the test. And here again, our thoughts go to a God who's out to get us. If he's testing us, it must be because he's testing us to see if we're faithful enough. He's trying to see if we're good enough. Or maybe he's just trying to catch us in unbelief. See, like, see, I knew you didn't have enough faith. I knew you wouldn't obey me. I knew you would fail the test. Our mind instantly goes to being evaluated by a cold God who's out to get us. But is that the image of a test that we see in Scripture? Because in the story of Scripture, as the narrative unfolds, we see God inviting people to be a part of his plan for redemption in the world. He's inviting partners to be with him, to know his heart, and to care about the things he cares about, and to step into their calling, to step into their original purpose and design to be with him and bringing good into the world. And that process is often what we could frame as a test, not because God's out to get them, not because God's out to get us, but because he's inviting us to trust him. He's inviting us to be with him. He's inviting us to be his partners. And even if in that test, our hearts go away from him rather than towards him, the story's not over. Another test is coming. Another invitation to trust is coming. We see this over and over and over again in scripture. Scripture begins with this framing. Will the first people, will Adam and Eve, will they trust God and live on his terms? Or will they mistrust God and try to make life work on their own terms? 
Now, we know how that story goes, but we also know that that's not where the story ends, that there's more invitation, more, more drawing in to be with him, to be his partners. Will Abraham and Sarah trust God in the pain of waiting the long years for the child that God has promised, or will they mistrust God and take matters into their own hands? If you know the story, you know that they choose to mistrust God, and yet the story's not over. God provides more opportunities, more invitation to trust him and to be with him. Will David trust God and rule as king on God's terms for the good of others, or will, God, will David mistrust God and make it about himself and use his power for his own pleasure and benefit? If you know the story of David, you know that there was a little column A and a little column B, but the story wasn't over. God continued to invite him to be with him and to trust him. The point is, at each point, the test is an invitation to a trusting relationship and an opportunity to step away from broken ways of living in order to step into our God given calling to be his partners in bringing redemption and good in the world. The test is not about God trying to get us. The test is about God inviting us to be with him and to become our true selves in his presence with him. And a test in the hands of a schoolmaster God who doesn't have our best interest at heart is a cold evaluation at best and an outright trap at worst. But a test in the hands of a loving father king is an invitation to trusting relationship, an invitation to step away from broken ways of living, and an invitation to step into our God-given calling to be his partners in the world. And the process is painful, and it often doesn't feel worth it. Sometimes it just hurts. But in the scope of eternity, nothing can be more precious than being with God than being his partner in redemptive, for redemptive good in the world and being formed into the kind of person that we were always meant to be. And we don't always understand the specifics, and there's so much mystery that we hold. And God invites us to express our real feelings with him in the midst of that mystery and in the midst of that pain. But we're to see in it the purifying purposes of God because he loves us. And that brings us to our final observation here. This is how we'll close the Apostle Peter in the way of Jesus is inviting us to experience in our suffering the suffering love of Jesus. See, he, uh, he calls their suffering in verse 13. Uh, he, he says, what you, what's happening to you is you're sharing in Christ's sufferings. He says in verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. What the heck is he talking about sharing Christ's sufferings? They're not hanging on the cross with Jesus. They're being mistreated for the fact of following Jesus. They're enduring hard things in a broken world. How is that sharing in Christ's suffering? What I, what I think Peter is drawing them to see, what he's drawing us to see, is that when we suffer, we suffer with Christ's sufferings because we get a taste, a picture of what God is willing to go through because he loves us. See, he's tapping into the story of God becoming the creator of the universe, becoming one of us in the man Jesus Christ, and suffering with us and for us. And when we suffer, we experience what God is willing to endure in order to love us and reconcile us to himself. Our suffering actually shows us the depth of his love, and it's mysterious, it's mysterious in that he would allow what he allows, but we're feeling what he's willing to feel in order to love us. 
Because when, when we suffer, we feel on a much smaller scale what the God of the universe suffered when he became one of us, experienced the human story, hung on the cross, bearing the sin of every person on, on his own back and on his own shoulders and letting it crush him. The God of the universe suffers with us. He's not cold and distant and removed. He doesn't theorize suffering with us. He doesn't explain it away with us. He comes to us. And he's felt what we felt, and he feels what we feel, and he's experienced what we experience. He's not distant. He's present. He's not removed. He's one of us. Albert Camus was um, an existential philosopher, not a Christian um, at all, but he understood the beauty of this. He, he put it like this as he was processing the beauty of a story he didn't believe, but what he saw had incredible power to reframe how we view God. He said this, he said, Jesus, the God-man, suffers too with patience. The night on Golgotha, that's the night that Jesus was uh, betrayed and, and uh, crucified. The night on Golgotha is important in the history of mankind only because in its shadows, God ostensibly abandoned his traditional privilege and lived through to the end, despair included, the agony of death. When we feel overwhelmed by the weight of a world that's not all that it's supposed to be, when we suffer, when we feel lost, when we're grieving, when we are full of anger, God has felt that too. God has been one of us too. God has felt on the cross, Jesus cries out in despair, the creator of the universe, who knows where the story's going, cries out in despair, and he feels what we feel. You know, many of you know that my... Um, my first ministry role uh, right out of college was uh, working with college students in San Salvador, El Salvador. And there was one student, a law student, who I was particularly close with. His name was Ronald. And I ran into Ronald on campus one day. I knew that Ronald had been going through a really hard time. And I saw him from across the atrium. And we kind of were, it was one of those moments where you like see someone from too far apart to be able to like greet yet, but then you have to like walk towards each other and like you're playing this dance of chicken of like who's gonna say hi first and at what distance is appropriate to acknowledge each other. So it was one of those moments. But walking towards each other and the closer I got, I could see that his, he was just distraught, tears running down his face, um, clearly overwhelmed. And so we said hi and I just, you know, acknowledged. Uh, you're not doing, do you need to talk? And he said, yeah, I would really love to talk. And uh, so we sat down, uh, we kind of grabbed a, a seat in a private place and he just spilled his guts with me. And I knew some of it, but there had been some, he was having an, an especially terrible day. And he was a bright, uh, a bright student studying law. And he came from a really low income family uh, out in um, the country, which in, in San Salvador, uh, country is much poorer than the city. And so he came from a very low income, uh, a low income community um, and he took a bus uh, for over an hour each way to get to, to get to the campus every day. And it was hard for him to study, but he was trying to make a better life for himself. And um, his parents had been out of work, and it looked like there was going to be no financial way to, for him to continue studying. And he was, he was wrestling with the disappointment of that. His mom um, had, a, they didn't, have the medical treatment to be able to have a stage number to it, but she was very advanced in battling cancer, and it was not looking good. And to top it all off, that day when he arrived at the bus stop outside the campus, he had been mugged and had his wallet and his phone stolen from him, and now he had no way to get back home because he had no money to pay for the bus fare, and now had this whole huge other problem and this emotionally traumatic experience. He's having one of the worst days you could possibly imagine. 
And he cried, and I listened, and we talked, and we just sat there together. And after a while, he asked if we could pray. And so we prayed together. And after we prayed, he looked up, and there was tears running down his eye, running down his face. And he had this big sigh. And he said something that I'll never forget. He just said really quickly, and this is all he could really get out, but he just said, he understands. Jesus suffered too. And it was as we were praying, it was like this light bulb clicked for him that I'm praying to a God that, that he's not just distant up in heaven. I'm praying to a God that really knows what I feel right now. I'm praying to a God who's with me and not just with me in this kind of vague, like spiritual mumbo jumbo sense, but that actually knows what I feel like, has actually put his money with his, where his mouth is to experience what I experience. And it changed everything about what he was experiencing in the moment. Didn't make the pain go away, didn't solve the problems, didn't answer any of the big questions that could legitimately be asked. But it reframed who we were asking those questions to. It reframed in whose hands are these things happening. A God who suffers too. A God who suffers with. A God who knows and who understands. You know, um, we don't always know the specifics of what God's plans are and what he's doing. But when we look at the cross, we look at the suffering love of God in Jesus' body hanging on a cross for my sin, for your sin, suffering in our place. When we look at the cross, we know where he is and what he feels. He's right alongside us, and he chooses to feel what we feel. And we don't always have an answer for why God allows the specific things that he allows. But when we look at the cross, we know what the answer can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love us. Because on the cross, as Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ suffers because he loves and his love is a mysterious suffering love that we come to experience in a deeper and richer way in the midst of our pain because it points to who he is and who he is for us and with us and what he's done for us on the cross. And we're going to close here. I'm going to invite the band to come up um, we'll, as we'll, we'll close out our service and um, the, uh, the, we can pass around the elements for communion. Um, we're going to have a moment to just be with God. And uh, the content of this passage of scripture is heavy. And in a community like ours, a room like this, uh, we have a wide range of experience of how this is hitting us and what we're bringing into the room. For some of us, this is a nice reminder and we're in a good season. Some of us, we're in the pit. And it's hard to even talk about this. Maybe there was a, our stomach dropped as we read the passage that we were even going to go there because it's heavy and we're not sure that well, that's what we want. But for each of us, God is with us and invites us to be with him. And so we're going to take a moment to be with him too and um, process. Ask God in the quiet of your own heart, was there anything here that was for me? Anything that you need to say to God, feel free to say it. During worship and after the service, there's going to be a few of us, Luke, um, Luke, Bill, a few, of the, a few others of us will be over. We'd, we'd love to pray um, just, or just listen um, for whatever is going on in life. But right now, we're just going to take a moment and be with God, and then we'll close in worship, and we'll take the elements, 
as we come to the elements, what we're reminding ourselves in the Lord's Supper is the suffering love of Jesus, this physical reminder. And as we come with a full heart to him and a moment to experience the real presence of Jesus for any who wants an experience of the real presence of Jesus, this reminder of Jesus' body that was broken and this reminder of his blood that was shed because he loves us. And so let's pray right now and have a moment to be with God. Take the elements on your own time. Lord, we love you. And right now we just, um, we make ourselves quiet. And just briefly, we want to ask you if there's anything specific that you had to say to us. Maybe not even anything directly to what I said, but just a thought that occurred as we were looking at this passage of scripture or something you brought to mind. Or if there's anything we need to say to you, God, we have a moment. We want to, we want to have that too. So would you speak to us right now? We pray, come Holy Spirit, just in this brief moment of reflection and quiet and being stillness with you. Come Holy Spirit. thank you for how much you love us. We thank you that we see that in your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. And we remember that. And we're not just, we don't just take the elements as a ritual, but as a declaration of truth that the God of the universe loves us so much that he suffers on our behalf. And that that's the truest thing about us, that we're loved by that kind of a God. God, I pray for any who are um, in the pit right now large or small. Maybe it's just the normal stress of life that feels overwhelming right now. Maybe it's a real tragedy. I pray that you'd minister to anyone who needs you right now. I pray that um, in a mysterious way that your love would feel real. I pray just for um, that we'd be patient with ourselves. Give ourselves permission to feel whatever we feel give ourselves permission to not um, not give easy answers permission to just be and in the midst of that that you would that you would meet us we thank you God that you're so patient we thank you that you're a God who while there are really good thoughtful ways of approaching the questions we have that That's not your number one priority. Your number one priority is that you're with us. And uh, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're able to, will you stand with us?
more times, but I want to open it up to go get prayer in the back. But I'm going to pray and release us officially, and if you need to linger, if you need to go get prayer, um, now's your time. So God, thank you for being with us. You are not a distant God. You see each and every one of us. You see exactly where we are. Would you meet with us, even in this moment, with your love, compassion that we are not alone in it. Would you heal those places in our hearts that need you the most today, God? We wait on you. We rely on you. If you need to
need to go and pick up your kids, go ahead and go. If you need to leave, you're released. But we're just going to go ahead and keep playing and take your time if you need it. 